All right, Matthew 26, and we'll get rolling here, and uh, then we will uh, see what's uh, going on. Yes. <laughs> there you go. All right, Matthew 26 here. Uh, again, we've been, uh, we've, uh, we're in the back into the section here. Uh, we're in the book of Matthew, obviously, a book that's talking about the earthly ministry of the Lord. Uh, we've been studying down through this. We're now here in the last hours of the life of Christ. And uh, he's on his way to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we left him last time. And uh, he's had the, the, the Last Supper, if you will, with the apostles. He's told them about his betrayal and upcoming death. Uh, he uh, instituted the new memorial uh, for them to have um, in regards to the new covenant. And now as we begin to uh, talk here, we're in verse 39. By the way, in verse 30, when they had sung a, song, a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. It's interesting, in Hebrews, I was looking at it today, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where he talks about for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and here he is going into the garden and he's singing a song. He's singing a hymn. So it's rather, uh, rather interesting. Uh, we'll see the mindset here. Uh, he's actually singing as he's going to go out to die. And uh, he's not worried about it. He's not concerned with it. He's uh, going and doing what the will and the word of the Father for him is to go and do. And it'll be a great picture as we kind of go down through that, through this this evening. All right, verse 39, that's where we're going to pick up. And we, I know we kind of talked about some of this last time about the prayer issue. So we're just going to catch some things here and uh, look here. Verse 39, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and again, we see the Lord here, kind of some tender moments, but we see the, him praying. Uh, he's in the garden. Again, verse 39, he prays. Verse 42, he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, they will, I'm sorry, thy will be done. Verse 44, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And again, as he goes and as he's praying, what you see him say is, not my will, but thy will be done. He says it three times. And what you're seeing there is the scene here in Gethsemane is really the scene of him being submissive to the Father's will. And the Lord is, he had implicit faith and confidence in God the Father. Here's what we're going to be doing. So it's important here as we go down through this and as we begin to see, here's the Lord, the second member of the Godhead. He's God, he was God, is God, but what did he do? He went over here and he's got complete dependence upon, the, upon God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, so you see him as he represents uh, the perfect man, the last Adam, okay? The first Adam was in the garden. The last Adam, here he is in a garden. But the first man, Adam, he was in a garden, and he rebelled against what God gave him to do, wanting to do his own thing. Here, Christ in the garden as that last Adam He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. I told you last time that means olive press, not wine press. Or, uh, it's an olive. Olive oil is a type of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. So as, he's, as we see him, 
he's that classic example of what it is to be praying in the Spirit. And uh, again, he, we, we looked last time, I believe, where he cries, Abba, Father. We went over to Galatians 4. We cry that because of who we are in Christ. And uh, this, this prayer here is not just one of uh, intimacy that we can pray, but rather it's the prayer, it's the privilege of prayer of, an, of a son, of an adult son. And uh, as he comes here now and he's going to be doing some things and he's going to put himself in the position of, of complete dependence, submission, if you want, if you will, to the Father's will. In his distresses here, the depth of the conflict that he's about to go and endure, his intercessions are only going to get deeper these three times. They're going to start one and then deeper and deeper. And when, it do, when he does that, he do, he's not bitter, he's not rebellious, but rather he has now placed all of that on the Father. And literally, in the moment of all of this sufferings, if you will, he's going to lean more and more on the Father to go down through it. So it's really the, really the, the real prayer here, if you will, the real, the, the real example of it. Verse 39, he prayed, saying... There in verse 39, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Verse 42, he went again the second time and prayed, saying, O Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 44 and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now, the same words, hold on to here, look over at Luke 22. Luke 22 actually records these words, and uh, it's, it's, it, you need to understand that when, when Matthew says the same words, Luke 22, 42, He's say, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So the first prayer, he says, if it possible, let it pass. Then he says, if it's not possible for it to pass away, to go, okay. Then he says, if it's possible not to do that at all, then thy will be done. If it's not possible, if it has to be done, okay. Come back to Matthew 26. Thy will be done. And that's the point. The big issue with Christ was not whether he was going to take the cup or whether he didn't take the cup. It was rather whether the will of God, the Father, was done. So when he comes and prays this way, he's praying for the will of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy be done. And that's a total, complete submissiveness to the will of the Father. He, he, he's not questioning about the cup. And, and what's interesting here is it's important that you understand what the cup is so you can understand what praying, when, why he prays, what he does. The cup here, and what it's representing. There's a, there's a thought out there in Christian dumb that people say that the cup was death. And that what he's doing is praying that he wouldn't die before he got to the cross. Okay? They use Hebrews 5 to do that, and they do a little dance and so forth. The thing is, is in John 10, way prior to this event, the, he says, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down and I take it up again. The Lord's not afraid to die. By the way, nobody's going to kill the Lord. As we go through this, we'll see. The Lord, he, he wasn't afraid to die. Nobody was going to kill him. Death wasn't the issue here. 
He wasn't afraid of dying because he wasn't afraid of, of Satan. He's the one with power. Of, uh, he's the one that's got uh, the power of death and hell. He wasn't afraid of any of that. Okay, so come back with me to Jeremiah 25. So then the issue is, is what then does this cup, what does the cup represent? What, what is going on here? Jeremiah 25. And again, the idea in the passage that he's praying to God that he wouldn't let him die before he got to the cross, that's just somebody not paying attention or wanting to study out what the cup is. What, what, what is the cup? And that's the key. Now, in Jeremiah 25, uh, we're going to come in at verse 15. Jeremiah 25 is the prophecy here of the 70 years of captivity, of the Babylonian captivity. It, it's all being laid out here. And uh, he, he, it's an interesting thing about the tribulation and the captivity. He's going to, verse 15, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. You see that wine cup of this fury? There's three times in human history where the wrath of God was poured out without any mixture. And, it, and a cup is associated with it. The first one is the tribulation. That hasn't happened yet. That's coming. The second one is the lake of fire. And the third is Calvary, is the cross, where this cup is at. Look at verse 17. Notice this cup. Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. The cup that they're going to drink from that comes from the Lord hand, Lord's hand is called the, cup, the wine cup of his fury. That's the point. Come over to Isaiah 51, or back to Isaiah 51. So the cup of his fury, the cup of his wrath, Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. The cup of his fury is a cup of his wrath, a cup of indignation, a cup of judgment against sin. And you'll notice the verse here, come on over to Revelation 14. Here's the fulfillment of that passage in the tribulation, Revelation 14. So when you think about him looking at the cup, he wasn't worried about the cup. He's worried about making sure the will of the Father is accomplished. He's not, he looks down in that and goes, okay, I can do that. <laughs> and he just, but not my will, but thy will be done. Look at Revelation 14, verse 10. Here, here's the fulfillment, by the way, in the tribulation of Jeremiah and Isaiah. Here it is, 14, 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Remember, wine of the cup of his fury, the wine cup of his fury, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascend up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and, who's, and who receive the mark of his name. So when you begin to look around, and there's other passages. We can come back to Matthew now, uh, 26. You begin to look around, and what you begin to understand and what you begin to find out is that that cup that passed out from the Lord's hand is the cup of God's fury and wrath against sin, and he understands that. So it's not just death. And it's not the idea of going to the cross. And again, what the Lord, the Lord is not fearing dying. In fact, he's told his disciples that he's going to, all along here, he's going to do what? He's going to the cross. I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and then I'm going to be raised again. 
So he's not worried about dying. He looks into that cup. He sees that sin and the, the wrath of God and the fury against it, his, his holiness. I mean, you think about who Christ is. He looks in there and he, his holiness kind of steps back from it. You know, Habakkuk uh, chapter 1 he says, thou, uh, thou art of pure eyes, then to behold evil, and cannot not look on iniquity. See, he looks into that cup, and he just kind of stems back. Because he's looking at it. He, he's, his righteousness, his, his holiness, his integrity is made up of righteousness and justice. And when his, his righteousness can't look at that, so he looks down into that cup, he sees the fury, he sees the wrath, and he just kind of, whoa, okay, see? See, then he goes and says, I ain't worried about that. I want to make sure my Father's will is done. By the way, those two attributes that make up the integrity and holiness of God is his righteousness, that perfect standard. And his, it's his righteousness that refuses to recognize, to look at, and to tolerate sin. His justice is the other attribute that makes up his integrity. Right, here's the righteous standard, perfection. And his justice comes along and enforces the standard. That's why Paul spends so much time in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 there, and 5, about righteousness and the integrity and justice and proving the case and all of that. So uh, it's, you know, with God has a high standard. By the way, if you, ever, if you do have a high standard, but you don't have any way of having a quality control to keep it up there, see, God doesn't have a problem with that. He's my standards here and my justice keeps right there. So come back to Matthew 26. So when he looks here again, when he saw the cup, he saw it as it was, the sins of mankind, and then the fury and the anger and the wrath of God against your sin. His, he just, his soul just kind of shrank back. He just kind of stepped back because of that holiness, that righteousness that he has. He couldn't look at it. But when he says it, he just says, not as I will, Lord, Father, but what do you will? What do you need done? Verse 42, he says, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And again, the will of the father in the matter was the absolute thing here. There's a progression in his thinking, and that's the issue. Again, verse 39, Oh, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup. Now it's what? <laughs> oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away, except I drink it, thy will be done. There's a movement here. If it can't pass, okay, great, I'll take care of it. I'll do what needs to be done. Come over to John 18. Notice it here in John, when John goes in, they, they've, uh, John 18, <clears throat> they're in the garden. Uh, they've come out of the garden. Verse 10 is where we need to go. John 18, 10. Judas has already sought to betray him. In the previous verses here, in the chapters where we're at in Matthew 26. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. <clears throat> And smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. By the way, that's the only place you find out what this guy's name is, is right here, is Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheaf. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now notice where the Lord's thought was. Now, he's going to reach down and heal the guy. We'll see that here in a minute. But Christ knew that the issue 
was resolved here. When this event happens, when Judas comes, gives him the kiss of betrayal, boom, the, the Lord is resolved. And the cup was what the Father gave him to do. He's going to go to the cross, and he's going to drink it, and he's going to carry on, and he's going to do it. Now, come over to Galatians 3, because when you think about this, and what you have to have really, that, that's why I said we ought to know more about the life of Christ than anybody else that walks the earth. And we ought to have a deeper appreciation about what's going on at Calvary than anyone else because this that's happening here borderlines on blasphemy. Okay? And, and you, just look at Galatians 3 and look at verse 13. Notice what God is what God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit says that's going to happen to him on the cross here. By the way, 1 Corinthians 12, I got a note here, verse 3. It says that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. Okay? Now watch Galatians 3:13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Look at what God says happened to him on the cross. He was made a what? Accursed. But wait a minute, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, You call Jesus accursed, you're in trouble. That's why I said this borderlines right on that blasphemy. But when you look at it, you go, wow, because here, think about when they put the thorns, the crown of thorns on his head, and they say, hail the king, hail to the king of the Jews, here he is. What they're literally doing is fulfilling what Genesis 3 said. And in Genesis 3, God cursed the ground with Adam, and the sign of the curse of the sin on of the curse of sin on creation was the ground brought forth, you remember? Thorns and thistles. And the thorn, we used to have a thorn bush in our old place when we lived in Mesa. And uh, I did some and big old thorns like that. And that's the, the bush actually that they used to make up these crowns and so forth. And when he and he says, listen, guys. There it is, and they pushed that on him. So here comes the Lord. Think about this. He's the perfect man. He's the last Adam. And then mankind takes the symbol for cursed for us, and he takes that on, and he says, I can do this. If it's possible to pass, great, but if not, no problem. So what does he say? Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. A proper description and a proper appreciation of what happened to Christ at Calvary is as close to blaspheme as you could ever come without doing it. The only reason it isn't blaspheming is because it's what God said it's God's word. God took his son and hung him on that tree. God made him to be a curse. He made him to be sin. He made him to be the, the, the personification of sin. And then the Lord suffered in his soul, that transformation that's described in there in the book of the Revelation as the second death. And off he goes. He took the cup. Come back there to, well, come over to 2 Corinthians 5. He took the cup. He drank it. And guess what? He did it as an innocent man. I don't know if you ever think about being blamed for something you didn't do. And yet, and you know it. And yet you still take the punishment. You see, he is innocent. 
yet he still bore the reproach. He was spitefully and hatefully and wrath of treated, and yet he was innocent. That's what he did. He, he, he was numbered amongst the transgressor. He was not a transgressor. We'll see down as we go through in the, in, the, in the account. Peter looks at him three times and says, I find nothing wrong with this guy. And you still, he's an innocent man. What are you guys doing? He was innocent. He was, but he was numbered with the transgression. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18 and all things are of God. Enough said. <laughs> Keep moving, right? Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ. God was personally present in his Son reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. How? Verse 21, For he hath made him, for he, that's God the Father, hath made him, that's God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. God the Father made the Son to be our sin, personified it. Per, there he is. He knew no sin, and he's going to be made. God the Father laid all of the blame for all of the sins of the, of the world, the ages, past, present, and future. And he put them on him. And he put him on, he put him on his soul, the son's soul. And that's what the cup was all about. As he looked down in that, and when the Lord saw that, and he looked at it, and he's thinking about it, come back to Matthew 26, and he's concerned with it. And he says, you know what, Father? I ain't looking in that cup no more. If it can pass, great. But if not, let's get on with it. And he literally goes and he drinks it down. What did Isaiah say? To the very dregs. And he wrings the dregs out of it. And the Lord goes and does what needs to be done. Now, again, we don't get all of the doctrine in Matthew. That gets, we get a lot of it revealed to us later. We're looking back through Pauline, the Pauline you know, glasses and so forth. But we need to appreciate what he's doing here as he's now going to give his soul an offering for sin. Again, not to just die as a sinner, but to die as the innocent one. He was innocent, and he's he, 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 he is being pronounced as being innocent. They kill him anyway. So he goes and dies for us, and he has our sins placed on him. And in, in Romans 6, when we talk, we've been talking about that on Sunday mornings, about being dead to sin, that co-death, burial, and resurrection. When he died, you died. When he wrote, was buried, you were buried. And when he, wrote, when he walked out of the tomb, you walked out of the tomb with him. That identification. And he does that. And he's saying... Basically, he looks at that cup and says, if there's any other way, great. If not, blame me. I'll go do it, and I'll take care of it. Because it's not my will. My, his will would be what? Put that cup back in the cupboard, man. I don't want to see that. My righteousness, my holiness, can't look at that. But he says, no, not my will, but thy will be done. Let's go do what you want. Let's go get the job done. Verse 43. Matthew 26, 43. By the way, this was established before the foundation of the world that he was going to do this. You ever, that song, Put Me In Coach, I'm Ready to Play? The Lord wrote that song back before the foundation of the world. When the plan was developed and was laid out, the son was like, let's go do this right now. <laughs> let's not wait, let's do this now. And, the, you know, the fathers, you got to wait and work it out. 
All right, verse 43. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Poor guys. And he left them, verse 44, and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Again, he, he, he just, he, he doesn't insist on dying here. He doesn't insist on escaping and getting away. The will of, the, of God was the absolute thing in his life. The cup was not absolute, by the way. Think about Genesis 22, the type, the picture here. Abraham takes Isaac up on the hill. He's got the lad tied up, ready to kill him. And yet, what popped, what, what happened? He, did, he, did he kill him? No, he didn't kill him. You see, God intervened and Abraham didn't have to kill him. In type, he did, but in actuality, he didn't. He received him back. So whether Christ actually drank the cup or whether he didn't, the issue wasn't that. It was doing the will of the Father. That's the issue here. And when he, overcame, when he came out of the garden, we're going to see it here, the issue is settled. And what you're going to see now from here on, from 44 on, is the total submissive spirit in which Christ now goes to Calvary. That submission and going because it's the will of the Father and the disciples are going to have a major problem with it. And they're not going to get it. And, they're going to, and it's going to hurt them. Look at verse 41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. They didn't watch. They didn't pray. And because of that, they're going to have some real problems in the next few verses. You know what they're going to do? They're going to deny him. They're going to be offended by him, and they're going to run away. Literally so much that the only guy, the only disciple that stands with the Lord, goes in with him, is, or is in the audience, is John. Peter is outside in the courtyard, standing by the 50-gallon drum fire pit going, denying the Lord. He doesn't even enter into the trial. John is, but nobody, they're gone. And the reason is they weren't up to watching and praying and entering into his mindset as he has tried to get them to understand and to do. He, they, they, they were focusing on, man, we've been up all day. Oh, you, you sleep first and I'll watch. <laughs> and I'll wake you up when he's coming. And the next thing you know, everybody's out. Now you have to think about this. There's only 11 of them here. They come to the first spot, and then he pulls Peter, James, and John to the second spot, and then he goes to the third on his own. And so there's this drifting away. They're all tired, poor little guys. The Lord isn't even, he's been up longer than they have, and they're, they just can't, they're going to have problems. And you begin to see it, verse 45. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He is resolved in his mind to go drink of the cup. He's ready to go. And uh, he looks at them and says, you guys just rest. It's all been settled. It's all been done. Now, come over to Luke 22. And notice some detail here as we, that's not in Matthew. Again, Matthew is showing him as the victim because he's the king and, and so forth. Luke gives us more of, that, of the human side and the man side into it. And uh, it's at this time in Matthew 26, 45, where the angels come and comfort him. Luke 22, verse 42 
saying, Father, if thou, will be, uh, if, thou, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer... And he was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. That's it. It made him sorry to fi- sorrow to find them sleeping. They weren't in sorrow for him. They were sleeping. <laughs> when I'm sleeping, I ain't thinking about sorrowing for nobody, you know. Linda aroused me the other morning. I'm like, man, you messed up my good dream, man. Come on, <laughs> you know. And she's like, sorry, sorry. I'm like, I'm up now. Forget it, you know. <laughs> you know. Then you roll over, and it's like, and they weren't doing. They were dead, tired dog. Boom, they're out. And, but his sorrow was he came and found his guys doing what? Sleeping. Now the angel comes and strengthens him. Come back to. Matthew 26. Three times is uh, the number three in Scripture is divine perfection. So again, it's three. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the three times. It's the in the three witnesses need three witnesses to get the deal done. So it's just a completion. It's a it's a it's a number three is also a number of perfect completion. It's a complete thing. It's done. Uh, rose again in three days. It's complete. It's not a, nothing's missing, nothing's left out of whack. So uh, back to Matthew 26. So the thing in Luke there, when people ask about, well, what, what did the angel do to strengthen him? And, uh, you know, Elijah, the angels come, the ravens come, they bring and so forth. And you know what? I don't know what the angel did to strengthen him because it doesn't say. But I have a funny feeling about because of knowing what's coming. Seven times he speaks from the cross. Those seven times he's quoting the book of Psalms. Come, on, come, come back with me to Psalms 102. Psalms 102. And in Psalms 102, and we're not going to read the whole psalm. You can do that. Psalms 102 is called the Gethsemane Psalm. And if you read this psalm, read it with Gethsemane, the stuff we're looking at in Matthew, in mind, because the title says, A Prayer of the Afflicted, when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord, before Jehovah. In the psalm, you, you, he, the, the nation of Israel is in it, the Lord is in it, Jehovah's in it, the Lord Jesus Christ is in it. And when, they, when that angel comes to minister, they minister this psalm to him. And they remind him of the words and the things that were prophesied there. He's going to have agony and suffering... And then he's going to have glory and, 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 and uh, the glory of the kingdom. His sufferings and his glory. So when you come back to Matthew 26, the Gethsemane psalm, it's what it's said to be, is, is a psalm here that uh, no doubt uh, pictures the mental attitude of the Lord during this time. Now, it also shows it's a psalm for the nation of Israel as well as they are going to go through that tribulation and be afflicted. You're going to go through some suffering, but the glory's coming on the other side. Be ready for it, okay? So when you think about knowing what's, what the Lord does on the cross and you go, wow, how, you know, what better way to strengthen the Lord than to come in and just remind him of a passage he helped write? <laughs> And say, hey, remember you wrote this and just remind him of the positive mental thinking he needs to have. <laughs> okay? Verse 46, Matthew 26, 46. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that, that, that doth 
betray me. Again, Luke will give you more information about some of this stuff. And Matthew, he's telling everyone that he's the Messiah, he's the Redeemer, he's the King, he's the victim. But when he, when, when he walks out of the garden now, we're going to see the work of redemption. It's in, his, it's, it's in the hands of the one who cannot fail. And if you think about what's going on here, when he leaves that garden, he leaves as the one who has overcome self-will. He, he, he is the one who has come and he's resisted the devil, if you will. And he is going to go now into that battle on the cross with the adversary he's going to get he's going to be get bloodied and but he's going to come out victorious and that's what's happening here Matthew 26:46 so when you see Christ in Gethsemane here you see the victory of of the 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 one who is the perfect man the last adam and uh, that's why this stuff bears such a heartbeat for you and I today. Because what the Lord is doing here in these prayers and, and, and other things and the other accounts and so forth is he is um, showing the victory of the inner man. He's showing what, because it's all inner man. Physically, he's gonna get, he's gonna, they're going to kiss him. He's going to get beat on. And, you know, for you and I, we're, Christ strengthens our inner man, see. And he does it with the word, builds up, and off we go. So what you see here again is him doing that. Verse 47, and while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came. So he comes out of the garden, and things now are going to go quickly. They're going to begin to pick up. Literally, we're going to, you know, it's just going to be a race now to, to the grave, to the cross. And uh, he's going to do it completely and totally in submission to the will of the Father. Philippians 2 over there, where he says, In being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that's, and that's where we're at right here. All right, verse 47. Here comes Judas, the man. And while he, he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, whereof art thou come? I'm sorry, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now, it's very interesting. You begin to see, once again, human nature get demonstrated out here over and over again. And, then, and what it's going to demonstrate here with Judas is here's a guy that knows what he's doing. He knows the result of what he's doing, and yet he goes ahead and does it. He knows that what he's doing is, is a willful sin, and, it's going to, and it merits in death, only death. And yet, what does he do? He does it anyway. Jesus isn't going to make him do anything here. He's already doing it on his own. And there's, come over to John 18. Notice the passage here. He's going to come up. He sees the Lord, gives him a little peck on the cheek. And Judas, uh, John 18. And off they're going here. Now, John 18, verse 1 and when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, 
where there was a garden into, into the which he entered and his disciples and Judas also betrayed him, no, no, knew the place <coughs> for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. John does not describe the garden scene like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But yet verse 2 is very instructive because Judas knew where to go because he's gone, he, he's been there before. So when Judas shows up, he goes, man, he's going to be right over here that's, and praying, and that's where he always goes, you know. So creature of habit, there we go, let's go get there, okay? Verse 3, Judas, then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's dark. It's not, you know. So they got their flashlights and their lanterns and all this stuff. <coughs> uh, the, the saying is, the dirty work is always done in the dark. And uh, growing up with dad and stuff, he always quoted Bob Jones Sr. And, uh, you know, in the dark is when you find out the character of men. Stuff like that. So here they are in the dark. They don't do it openly in the daylight, which, oh, by the way, that's what the law required, was to do all this during the daytime. So they're violating their own law, the Old Testament. They're up here at the dark in the middle of the night. Now, watch what happens. Verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. <laughs> now, when we went through this when John, we had, we had we, I, it's very fascinating how thick-headed, and dumb and stupid these guys are. By the way, you see the word he is in italics, I am he. The he is not in Greek, but the he is needed to, to make the English work. The I am, you remember the I am that I am, Exodus 3, 14. I am, whatever you need. He says, look, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I'm him. That's, I'm, here I am. I'm Jehovah, here I am. Who do you seek? Now, they go down, look at verse 7. Then ask he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus is Nazareth. And he's answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might, notice they, <clears throat> that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which, thou uh, which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And then said Jesus unto Peter, put up your sword into the sheaf. The cup which the Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captains and the officers of Jesus of, of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. No, notice, they say, "Who are you? We're looking. Who are you looking for? Who?" And they and he and he says it. I am, and they lay out. He lays them out, blows them backwards. Now and then he's then he says, "Well, who are you looking for?" They say his name again. He lays them out again. You know, you think I'm looking for Bill. Where's Bill? <laughs> You know, Bruce, where's Bruce? We want Bruce. You know, that's who we're after. They don't get that. Now, you think about Peter. Peter, he didn't have a six-foot sword like, you know, the big, you know, you know, he had a little, little dude. Now, if you're going to take the guy's ear off, what does that mean? He's been headhunting. He's going for the head, and the guy ducks and whacks the ear off. Peter's a commercial fisherman. Those guys know how to fight. They don't, it's not a, you know, a pillow fight with those guys. And Peter was ready to die for him. He's already told the Lord, I'll die for you. And uh, we're going to get in there and we're going to get it go. 
And again, the Lord, go back to Matthew 26, the Lord heals the guy there and, and uh, so forth in verse 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, notice how he doesn't identify Peter. He just has him, one of the guys with him. And Luke twenty two fifty one, he reaches down and heals him there. So you think about the, the scene that's happening here. The Lord comes out of the garden praying. They come up. By the way, they kiss him. That's an interesting thing. He, that, that issue of a kiss. If you go to... Oh, i got to find my note here. It's in, there it is, verse 48. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. 1 Kings 19, 8, verse 18, and Hosea 13, verse 2. And you'll find there that the Baal worshippers kiss each other. And it's kissing the ring. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, he is told that there's, I got guys in Egypt that have not bowed the knee or kissed the ring of Baal and so forth. So that's why the kiss is there. It's a kiss of betrayal. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 49, 26-49. Notice he, Judas says, Hail, Master. We, I told you when we first talked about Judas, he never calls him Lord. It's always Master. Because Judas ends up being that type of the Antichrist and so forth, and there it is. By the way, count the number of words in verse 49. Count them. How many are there? Thirteen. The number of rebellion. just happens to work out that way in your English Bible. King James Bible, okay? All right? doesn't work that way in other ones. They mess with the verse. Verse 50. And Jesus said unto him... Isn't that interesting? Friend, wherefore art thou come? Now, it's interesting that he called him friend. Come over to John 15. Back to John, chapter 15. <clears throat> John 15, verse 13, verses we are very familiar with. John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I've chosen you, my friends. Now, Judas is not there in John 15 when Christ says this to him. He has left in Judas, in, in Judas, in chapter 13, to go cut the deal on the betrayal and so forth. The next time, so think about this, upper room, John 13, the sop, bam, Judas, go, the devil enters him, Judas leaves the room, goes down, meets up, gets his 30 pieces of silver, they lay the plan. The next time Christ sees Judas, Christ calls him, friend. Isn't that fascinating? Matthew 26, 50. He says, friend, Judas, you're one of my boys. You're one of my guys. You're one of us. You're my friend, Judas. You have the opportunity to have the same relationship with me that Peter and James and John and the rest of the guys had. I haven't thrown you away yet, Judas. Now, what did you come for, Judas? Did you come to take your stand with me, or did you come to do something else? Wherefore art thou come? Why did you come, Judas? You're one of us. Now, he's fulfilling Psalms 41, verse 9. Okay? And Psalms 41, verse number 9, 
I wasn't going to go back there, but I'm drawing a blank, so we'll have to go back there. John Psalms 41, verse number 9. Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. It's interesting, it's heel. Genesis 3, you'll bruise his heel as he crushes your head. Heel, it's interesting. Not lost there for a reason. You see, folks, when Judas, when he says, Judas, I mean, think about this, Matthew 26, they're ready to take him. And he says, Judas, you're one of my guys, man. What, 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 what's going on? Are you here with me or are you against me? What, you got some, what, wherefore art thou come? What's going on, man? And Judas He's, nope, I come to betray him, and he kisses him. Then came uh, Matthew 26, 50. Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Uh, by the way, Proverbs 27, verse 6, says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And that's where he is. Judas took the accolade, but he turned out to be a deceiver. Verse 50, they come and they lay hands on him. Verse 51, and behold, one of them, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? In the same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, watch now, forsook him and fled. The guy's sleeping. What are they doing now? They're out. Now, we know in John that he asked for them to be released. But you know what? They still ran. They didn't say, no, Lord, we're standing here with you. They hit the road. Now, we'll pick up in, in this part in here and go down through it a little because of time. When the Lord comes out of the garden, he comes out totally submissive to the Father's will. will. Again, not, he ain't worried about dying. He's just worried about getting the will of the Father done. And the disciples missed that because they were asleep at the time. They never got to hear him say what he said. They should have been praying with him. They should have learned with him. They should have been listening to him. But because they didn't understand his total surrender to the opposition here, I mean, you th they come and take him. Peter's pulling the sword to fight. I'm ready to fight, man. I'll fight at the drop of the hat, and I'll drop the hat. Let's go. And the Lord's like, Peter, put it away. And he, and he allows them to take him. Because he's coming out of that garden as that lamb before his shears is dumb. And he's coming there ready to be numbered with the transgressors. He's ready to die. He Again, he's... He's completely submissive to the Father's will. And we'll talk more about this next time. Just don't miss the issue here of the total surrender to the will of, of God the Father. That's the kicker. Now, you and I, we live in the dispensation of grace. You and I live in an age where <clears throat> it's, we, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And what God has done for us in Christ in our positions, 
and our position, and he, what he does for us by Christ, his life, that becomes our daily life. We, and, and yet, what begins to happen is, is even we fall, tend to fall asleep. That's why Paul will chide later, and he'll say, you're not children of the night, you're children of the day. Wake up. Wake it up. Let's go. Pay attention. Because we tend to fall in the same way. But yet at the same time, don't miss this total submission to the word and the will of the Father. You and I are to be the same way. Okay? All right. Time's up. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we thank you for who we are in your Son, for all that you've given to us, for all that you've blessed us with. And in your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.